Warning, Home Truths is about real life, and real life can be distressing. Topics covered may include descriptions of domestic violence, sexual abuse, addiction, or mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. A Podcast One production. I'm Wendy Searle, and this is Home Truths. When I started this podcast, I set up to collect the stories of seemingly ordinary people who'd led extraordinary lives. And very few people I've met have lived a more eventful life than Margarita. I was determined to stop him, and that's all I want to do. Stop him. You know, why? Why prey on elderly women? It's just horrible. And it wasn't going to do it to anybody else if I could help it. Margarita is a 96-year-old woman who my mother made friends with at a senior centre in Brisbane. And ever since, my mother has regaled me with stories of Margarita's resilience and determination to stand up for what is right. So I flew to Brisbane to meet this incredible woman, and she didn't disappoint. Margarita, you were married in the war. What was that like? It was horrible. (laughs) I don't recommend it. Um, Because I was based in London, which was not a good place to be, and uh, I was there through, through the whole war. Did you serve in the war? Yes, I did. I was called up in uh, 1941 to go into the nursing service. And uh, I stayed there until I became pregnant and I just missed D-Day because of that. And for me, that was fortunate because my sister-in-law was in the same unit as myself and they were went to Belson on day three. They were the first medical team to go into Belson. And I don't think I don't think I could manage that. Margarita, when my mum mentioned you, she mentioned your age, yes. which is ninety-six. Yes. And also that you're someone she really admires. She admires you because you're really clever. She admires you because you're really witty. And she also admires you because your life stories are always very interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about before you came to Australia? Uh, Well, mostly I was working for the um, National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And uh, I was based in the London office. And what we had to do was if the men inspectors, there were mostly men inspectors, um, had to go to attend something with a female child, we had to go with them. And we used to turn up at the door of the place and say, we're from uh, Prevention of Cruelty, may we come in? If they said no, and they did very often, then we said, okay, we'll go away, we'll get a warrant and we'll come back in uniform. And they never wanted to see the inspectors from Prevention of Cruelty to Children on their doorstep, so they'd let us in. And then we had to deal with whatever the the problem was in the house. And it wasn't always poor people. It was sometimes people quite well off, but they weren't treating their children properly. So you'd served in the war and then you were dealing with 
children who were abused, you saw a lot of abuse and drama in your um, youth through to, I suppose, middle age. Yes, I did, I suppose. Um, with quite a lot of things that happened to me, and I have spoken to about this, mainly since I've been going to the um, this senior centre. For me, it's an outlet to be able to talk about things now that I never did. And uh, when I've been telling them the stories, somebody will say, it could fill a book. She shares stories about life during the war and her travels. And when it comes to stories about life's harder lessons, her resilience and humour begin to shine through. When I came out here, we bought a piece of land at Petrie and we built our house. And then my husband, who was only 44 at the time, had a stroke and he had to go into hospital and stay there for a long time. And I came down to Wynnum to live with my sister-in-law because it was easier to get to the hospital. And uh, my brother-in-law, who worked with my husband, had gone to work in the morning. And then I heard him outside and his wife saying to him, you know, what are you home for? And then I heard her going, oh, my God, oh, no, oh, my God, oh, you'll have to tell her. And he came in and he said, I'm sorry, he said. And I thought, that's it, he's died, I know he's died. And here I am in a strange country. And then he said, I'm sorry, I have to tell you, your house burnt down. And I started laughing and I'm... I'm so relieved that it's not my husband that's died. And I can hear my sister saying, sister-in-law saying, smack her face, smack her face, she's hysterical. <laughs> I wasn't. I was just laughing because, oh, is that all? What was your marriage like? Bristol. It was really, really good. I was very, very lucky. And uh, although I haven't exactly had what you'd call a cue waiting to say, would you like to come live with me? I have had a few people and I look at them and I think, no, you're never equal, Mick, never. What was it about Mick that made him so special? Um, Well, he was a Spanish gentleman. He was the most considerate, nice, kind person you ever wish to meet. He really was. And I'm not just saying for myself, but other people have always said to me, gee, you're lucky. Anything that I wanted to do was okay with Mick. Um, it didn't matter what it was. We never argued, we never quarrelled. It just, it was just nice. It was a very good marriage. And he died too young. He was 78, but there was too soon. He should still be alive now. You continued to work when you came to Australia. What did you do? First of all, I came... I worked at the um, State Children Department and I worked at Woolowin in the um, children's home and uh, we looked after children from a few days old to 18 and we did everything from nursing to whatever they turned their hand to. Margarita has a strong moral compass and this led her to continuing on with care work and advocating for at-risk children and teenagers. She retired at 60 and travelled the world with her husband for two happy years before life on a pension started to take its toll. Mick became ill and Margarita sought help from the government. What's it like 
moving from your own home into an aged care facility, what kind of feelings go through your head? Because my husband was so sick and it was a long ride to the hospital, I wanted to get really, really near. And I heard of a unit that you bought into and I was fortunate to get that, to be able to buy that unit. And, uh, you know, he would, could be in hospital in five minutes. And uh, Mick died after about 18 months of moving in there. My sister-in-law then was living in Cleveland and she didn't like it. And so she asked me to come with her to see this little community thing. And I went to see it and quite liked it. And I said to her, you know, I could live here. So, of course, she jumped on that and said, well, why don't you because be company for each other? And uh, I moved into this privately owned place. Margarita and her sister kept each other company until Margarita's son got Alzheimer's and she moved in with him and once again took on a carer's role. How old were you when you moved in to look after your son? I think I was 80 and... uh, he got worse very quickly and uh, he began to dislike me because he would see me in the kitchen and he'd say to Louise, who's that woman? And she'd say, it's your mother. And he'd say, that's not my mother. My mother's young. My mother's got red hair and, and she rides a bicycle and that old woman, that's not my mother. And then he got really aggressive with me and I came home from shopping one day had outside stairs up and I took all the shopping up and he opened the door to me and I said to him, can you lift that in for me? And he said, no, I'm going to push you down the stairs. So I decided maybe it'd be best if I moved. And uh, I moved to a place near so that I could go there two or three times a week and cook for them and then leave it in the fridge and go but um it didn't work out it was too dangerous so you'd come back and you probably thought this is the place where I'm going to live out the rest of my life yes that's right I did and that would have occurred but something happened in October 2016 if you could talk me through what happened um the managers were going on holiday and they brought in a friend and his wife to do the management while they were away. And one day this substitute manager came to my door and asked me what I did with a key to a previous unit that I'd been in. And I told him I left it on the place they told me to in the unit. And he said he was very worried. They had to find it. And could he come in and look around? And I just said yes, because... I haven't got it, so he's not going to find it. And he came in, he started searching, and I thought, wait a minute, I'm a JP and I have to sign if the police want to go and search somebody's unit. And here I am letting this man look around and search. And then after a while he came in, he said to me, I'm going to look in the bedroom, do you want you to mind? And I said, no, I'm getting angry. And I said, no. And he said, do you want to come with me? And I said, no, thank you. And then he came out and stood in front of me and put his hands out to me. And I thought he was going to say, I'm sorry about that and shake my hand. And he pulled me to my feet 
And he said, you old women, he said, you hide things in funny places. He said, what about under there? And he went straight under my top, hooked his thumb under my bra, and he yanked it up over my face. And I started to sort of try and hit him. And I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know what to do. And then he said, what about down there? And I thought, no, you don't. And I started pushing him away and saying, go, go away, go. And I think he thought I was going to start shouting. And he vanished. I, I didn't know what to do. You must have been in absolute shock. I was. I, the last thing I expected. And I didn't know and I didn't know. So anyway... I went up the next morning and he was in the dining room with his wife and I said to him, because I was ready for a fight, and I said, did you find that object you were looking for? And he lowered his voice and came over to the counter and he said, it's all right, he said, we're going to get a a locksmith in. And his wife heard him and she said, what's that about? So I told her, I said, I was searched and so was my unit. And she said, oh, dear, who did that? And I said, he did. And he was shouting at me, I did not, I did not. And uh, she said to me, oh, no, dear, look, I'm sorry. She said, you must be mistaken because we were out. And I said, well, you might have been out, but he was in my unit. And then she said, oh, but I was outside your unit all the time because you're two stories for the same thing. And uh, I started to walk away and she said to me, what are you going to do now? And I said, I don't know. I said, but it begins with the police and it ends with the court because I thought that's what I'm going to do. You're not going to do that to anybody else. Did you think he was searching you? No, I think it was all leading up to what he did. And uh, I'm just thinking of other ladies there that I knew of who had slight dementia and things like that, and how would they cope? And why should they have to? Well, the next thing, apparently, was this other lady who had dementia, who was found on a Sunday morning in the middle of the car park, yelling, get me out of here. And then when my neighbour went up to get the Sunday paper, which was kept in the dining room, he came back to tell us all the windows and doors are shut and the curtains are drawn, but there are people in there and voices. And then the man was gone the next day. But they never came to tell me that he was gone. And the story was put around that uh, somebody in his family had a car accident and he had to go home. And the managers there never, ever bothered to come and tell me he wasn't there anymore. Um, And why? They never mentioned anything again because they just didn't believe me. I don't think they expected me to do anything at all. They told me that to make such an accusation, I had to have an infection that was addling my brain. And uh, the thing she mentioned was Erty. 
a urinary tract infection. And I'd had a test, like a regular test with the doctor, a little while before. And I told her, no, I've just had a test. And it was clear. And then she said, well, perhaps it would be better if you had one, just to make sure. So I thought, right. I went to the doctor. I said to him, can I have a copy of that last test? And he said, yes, you can, but why? Because he knew I was a nurse. And he said, you know, it was clear. And I said, well, there there was a reason. And he sat back in his chair and he said, well, tell me. And so I told him and he said, yes, you can have a copy. And I said, will you write on the bottom of it what you think of my cognition? He said, I'll do better than that. I'll give you a test. So he gave me a test and I passed 28 out of 30. I took it the next day to the senior centre that I go to and I asked the manageress there if she would give me a copy. And uh, I said, and I'd like to talk to you later. And she forgot, she's very busy. And as I was getting into the bus to go home, she said, oh, what was that you wanted to talk to me about? So in about five words, I told her and got into the bus. And then I can see her still with outside sort of going, what? Got home, the phone was ringing and she said, we're coming to see you tomorrow. And she and her manager turned up, took lots of notes and said, we have to report this. And they did. They reported it to the police. And uh, they suggested that the police come to the centre to speak to me. And they came twice. Caused a lot of stir in the place because everybody wanted to know what the police were there for, but they didn't find out. What was the police's response? They were absolutely positive. I was treated very, very well. It was handed to the CIB section and detectives came to see me and they interviewed the managers there and they asked the managers why they didn't report it and the managers said they didn't have to. Why would that be the case? Well, I just don't think it came across their mind. They didn't even think about it. So you were being supported by the police and the senior centre. What was it like living where you were where the abuse occurred? Um, Well, my friends were supportive because then a little bit later, about two weeks later, another resident there had said to one of her neighbours, she had been assaulted too. The man had told her that he was a paramedic and he was worried about lumps in her neck. And he examined her neck and then he said, I have to examine your breasts to make sure there's no lumps there. And she was a lady that was a little bit more amiable than I, perhaps. And uh, she let him do it. And then she was, because he again hurried away, she thought he'd gone to report the results of this. And she said to her neighbour, when do you think the results of my exam will come through? And when she told the lady what had happened... Then she said to her, well, you've been assaulted because two other ladies here have been the same thing. And then she reported to police as well. 
So uh, they had to believe it. Three women had been assaulted in a very short time in, in this aged care home where you went to be safe. What was the response of the home? Well, nothing really. I don't think they believed any of us. They never spoke about it. It wasn't until about probably nine months or more that um, the managers were going on holiday again and the manageress then asked me if this man's wife came back to cook for them, would that upset me? And I, I just said, so long as he doesn't come back as well. And she said, no, no, he won't. How long did you live in that place after the abuse? I suppose about a year. It wasn't too bad except that I couldn't sleep because there's always noises at night. And although my front door screen door was a crim safe door, um, the back door was just a sliding glass window. And uh, if I heard a sound, I was awake. And then I had to go look everywhere, listen, lay back on the bed, put the light off and go, no, put the light back on again. I couldn't bear the light off. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to sleep again. So I'd probably sleep maybe an hour, an hour and a half, something like that, and then I'd be awake the rest of the night. Was it like that before the attack? Oh, no. No, I've been a fairly good sleeper, and I am now too. But um, I couldn't sleep. And uh, friends of ours asked if they could go to the shop and get exactly the same handle thing, but with a lock. The manager said no. You mustn't make alterations. I, each night, each time Catherine Barrett, who is now a friend, she would ring me up practically every week and she'd ask, you know, are you eating? Are you sleeping? And she'd say, look, let me get you somewhere else to live. And all I was thinking about was how much I'd got left in the bank and I didn't think it was going to be enough to pay a deposit, whatever they charge you as a bond. And uh, I'd say no. You referred to Dr Catherine Barrett, who is a preeminent researcher in the role of aged people in society. She founded Celebrate Aging in 2016, which is a national program challenging ageism and building respect for older people. What did she tell you about abuse of older women in our community? In general, she concentrated on me, but she also said that people were maybe treated like that, but they stopped at their first obstacle, which was reporting it, because mostly they were told imagination or all sorts of things, and people didn't believe them, and that, that, was, that was a big hurdle to them. They, they wouldn't go any further. And even ones that reported it, sometimes when they found out that it was going to be difficult to go through the process, they would withdraw. She was trying to get the politicians to realise that because it wasn't reported didn't mean it wasn't occurring. And when I spoke to the girls who look after us, all of them say 
I haven't had it happen to me to report, but I've heard of it and it does happen and it is happening a lot and it's just not reported because a lot of people feel shame that this has occurred to them and it's not their shame at all. It, it isn't. But my first reaction to it was, why did I let him come in? You know, it. I was blaming myself. When he said, can I come in, I should have said, no, go away and fetch your wife. But he was so close to me, he was standing toe to toe and I had the chair at the back of me. And I'm, I've got no strength at all. And although I was what I thought was punching him, it was probably like a fly landing on him um, because I really did think he was going to strangle me. You were 94 when this happened and you knew it would take some time to go through the due process. Did you ever waver about going through the process? No, definitely not. I was determined to stop him and that's all I want to do, stop him, you know, why? Why prey on elderly women? It's just horrible. And he wasn't going to do it to anybody else if I could help it. Was he charged? He would be remanded and remanded every month. I was classed as vulnerable witness and Jill would always go to the court for me to save me having to go there. He got a lawyer and they tried all sorts of tricks and things like that, but... It didn't work. Jill, I understand, is an ex-policewoman. How did she help you through the legal side of this process? Well, she did most of it. I, I really don't understand anything at all about police work or um, lawyers or anything like that. My, I've been a nurse, that's all. So this, this angel, <laughs> she's done everything for me. I don't know how I would have managed really without her because I, 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 I couldn't have faced him. I, I don't want to remember what he looked like. The man who abused you, he went to court and, and he pleaded guilty. Mm. How long did it take for the matter to finally come to the court? Um, I think it was about 14 months and uh, he got six months for both myself and the other lady and then it was immediately gone so long as he behaves himself for two years. So he didn't have a custodial sentence? No. At the end of the two years if he doesn't do it again then it's it finished. What was your feelings when that sentence was given? I was not very pleased. I was pleased he got the six months for each of us but I didn't think it was anywhere near a deterrent and uh, I, would, I would have liked to have seen him, well, <laughs> I, I had all sorts of things I would like him <laughs> like to do. Most of them was uh, surgical. <laughs> Are you still angry at this man? I'm trying to forget him. I don't want to remember what he looks like. Um, and trying to forget. Was it worth going through that process of bringing him to justice? In one way, no, because 
at the end of two years if he keeps his silly face out of it, um, he will be free. You were brave and you did what a lot of women don't do. You actually went beyond the reporting to the prosecution and for him being convicted. Do you feel a sense of pride that you went through that process? No, I don't feel proud. I'm pleased that he went to court. I'm pleased that he got convicted. It was just that always, always I'm wanting somebody to say, this man must not be allowed to work near elderly women again. But, of course, this conviction will not stop him. What would you say to another woman in an aged care facility where this has happened to her? I would say report it because people will help you. That's the main thing. One place they told me about to ring was in the Gold Coast. Um, There's a helpline there. And they helped me a great deal. They sent the lady to where I was attending at the senior centre and uh, she gave me quite a lot of counselling and it really, really did help. On this occasion, she said to me, stand up, close your eyes and just visualise that man standing in front of you. She said, now... Do you see him? I said, yes, I do. She said, now, what would you like to do? So I hit him and I kicked him and I used a lot of unladylike expressions and uh, it lasted about a good ten minutes. And then I sat down in the chair and I said, I feel better. I feel better. (laughs) That's what I wanted to do to him. So the role of counselling after a a woman is abused, um, would you recommend that as well? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. You do need it because I think that I've I've dealt with most problems in my life and I thought I would deal with it a lot better than I did. So I really needed help and I got it, fortunately. So you're 96 and a half... (laughs) That's like when you're three and a half, isn't it? (laughs) What are your goals now? Uh, Well, I'm going to be 100. (laughs) And maybe even older than that, who knows? (laughs) How do you feel about wearing the mantle of an advocate for women to speak out about sexual abuse as an aged person? I would be honoured. I would love to be able to help Dr Barrett in her push and I hope to do as much as I can really spread the message that speak up is not your shame speak up and get people to help you and they will they will help you and uh, then you can just relax knowing that You've done your best. You've stopped somebody or other assaulting somebody else. And how are you sleeping? Like a baby. So finally you're safe again in your home? I am. I'm absolutely safe. And uh, I'm enjoying life. (laughs) 
Margarita has spent her life advocating for those who struggle to find their own voice. And as you can tell, age hasn't dampened her ability or her determination to fight for a just cause one bit. Home Truths was presented by Wendy Searle and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production and music by Matt Nikolic. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au. Download the Podcast One app or search Home Truths on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to receive a free notification each time I release a new episode, hit subscribe. And if you would like to get in touch and share a story of your own, email me at hello at wendysearle.com. That's wendy, S-E-A-R-L-E dot com. Podcast One. If any of the issues in this episode have affected you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Lifeline provides all Australians experiencing a personal crisis access to a 24-hour crisis support and suicide prevention services. For a list of more specialised resources, please visit www.puckerup.com forward slash help and that's spelt P-U-K-A-U-P dot com forward slash help.